Hey everybody, welcome to Surface Level, creating a community where Black and queer folks are fearless in thought and curious at heart. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan, and today, Tony DeMond and I are discussing the politics of a diverse and divided America. Have recent Black Lives Matter efforts made us more comfortable speaking up against racism in white spaces? Do we think Black empowerment is leading to white rage? This is White Fragility. All right. So. She got her smart Steve Jobs outfit on today. <laughs> Come on, Steve Jobs. Give it to us. She's smart today. She is smart. I, she I'm, is kind. I am very, she is important. I am very studious today. <laughs> Given when you talk about white fragility. <laughs> we got to put a spectacle on. Put a spectacle on. Put okay. Bifocal. You need bifocal. Ooh, you know what? <laughs> I, that would probably really come in handy right now because the screen is very small. Um, so today we're discussing um, politics. And we have a very special guest yes. uh, who's coming on later in the conversation. And we're going to talk a lot about the black experience um, present day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I thought that it would be fun to play a game so excited. <laughs> about the black experience. I hope y'all are watching so... this on surface level. <laughs> Watch it. So the title of this game was inspired by Joe Biden, a non-black person, <laughs> when he told black Americans that if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or for Trump, you ain't black. And that, that is the name of the game. You ain't black. Mm-hmm. So it's, tri- it's, tri- <laughs> it's trivia. Oh, Lord. Multiple choice. And the first question is, in the movie Friday, Craig got fired on his day off for what? Stealing boxes or smoking weed? Smoking weed. Yeah. You ain't black. Uh, I'm like, I don't remember why he I got don't fired. Either. He was stealing boxes. I just went with what Tony said because I thought he'd be right. Well, I did mean, y'all see Friday? They were always smoking yeah. weed. I saw it moons and moons ago. I watched it, but I, I'm not one of those people that's like that goes back and revisits. Yeah, I, Friday's like not my movie of choice. Really. I loved it. The, the the ones with Chris Rock, and then they got carried away a little bit. But. I mean, it's it's fine, but I, I don't be like, ooh, Friday. I mean, not Chris Rock. Um, Mike Epps? No, Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was just like, where was the mistake? <laughs> no. Um. <laughs> all right, moving along. In the Jamie Foxx show, Garcelle Bouvet's character Fancy was short for what? Francesca or Francine? Francesca. Who knows that? Francesca. Fancy is her name. Her name is Fancy. <laughs> it was Fancy Francesca. is short and long for Fancy. You ain't black, Damon. <laughs> it was Francesca Monroe. Tony, you are black. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You, Thank you so much. What do, I, what do I get for being black? A gold Reparation. A fresh. Let's start with reparations. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what soul food dish is recognized as a symbol of good luck on New Year's Eve? Is it black eyed peas or macaroni and cheese? Black, black eyed peas. Oh, okay, cute. Okay, cute. What? You think we're not black, girl? Well, actually, I, I don't want I, you to answer right. these questions. I'm asking the damn questions. It's like, your mama don't cook. Y'all be having deviled eggs on I wrote the years. damn questions. <laughs> <laughs> and we do not think the deviled eggs are good luck, okay? Well, this way, we might need to trademark this game because it's kind of fun. <laughs> I think um, this game exists already. It might. It might. Mm-mm. It's Black Card something, something like it. No, this is unique. <laughs> this is a surface level game. We're going to come up with cards later. Yay. Okay. In the cookout slash baby shower slash wedding reception anthem song, Cha Cha Slide, mm-hmm. what is the very first instruction given? Slide to is the it, left. 
Is it oh. to the left or everybody clap your hands? To the left. You. Oh, it's to the left. Yeah. You mean what does the song? You ain't black. What does the song start with? Like clap your hands. What is the clap? Clap. What is the very first instruction you get? Everybody clap your hands. They start with that. Clap. Clap it. Yeah. I feel like you don't start dancing. That was a trick. I said, "What was the first instruction?" Not what was the first. Here she go. I said the first instruction. Speaking of curses, here she go. that white fragility. No, there's a white woman on surface level. First of all, we learned during SAT and ACT prep that you need to read the question thoroughly before you answer the multiple choice. You know what? The only reading I'm gonna do is of you. Read you into a box. We have Stephanie Jobs on the podcast. All right, you're playing Uno, and the person immediately before you plays a blue draw two. Which card is not an acceptable next card to play? A draw four or a blue skip? Which um, one can you not play? A draw four. That's your answer? Yeah. What's your answer, Tony? It's got to be the draw four because you can put a blue skip on... A blue. Oh, wait. It's a draw two. What's a not an acceptable card? You can't skip a draw. Bitch, you got to plug. You, the, so the, oh, the skip... Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, girl, you know, you got to think about this. Jordan, come up with these trick questions. She's speaking in uh, if you the, can't, it's the skip. You the can't answer the skip. is neither. Oh. See, apparently. Then she said the game this or that, and now she's going to tell me the answer is neither. <laughs> apparently, the Uno rules she, is that you can't put anything on top of a draw to about no Uno except rules. for I another draw two. About this, is her, this, is, this game should be called Gotcha. <laughs> I'm just like, what? Why people don't read the Uno rules? What are you talking about? Well, that's what I said. <laughs> um, and then finally, we're going to do another Jamie Foxx reference. In Jamie Foxx and T-Pain's 2008 alcohol anthem, Blame It, which liquor brand was mentioned the most? Is it Patron or Hennessy? Patron? Patron. Well, it's actually the goose, but... It was, but right, another trick question. Right. But Patron was mentioned. It's actually Grey Goose. (laughs) 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 It's actually not Grey Goose. It's actually Hennessy. Hennessy. Blame, Blame it, it on the Henny. Oh. <laughs> so Patron is only in the chorus. Henny's only in the chorus. But Henny is mentioned one extra time in a bridge. Well, only you would know that because you listen to music at like a marathon style. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> well, listen. That was the game. And the verdict is in. Y'all ain't black. So. And, 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 and I am. <laughs> so, Anyone at this table is black. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that, Karen. You are Karen. No, I was talking about Karen Huger when Giselle said that the Karen Huger. Don't do that, Karen. All right. Um, we're going to move into our discussion and get out of the ridiculousness that is Jordan's <laughs> game of... Um, game of games. You ain't black. <laughs> game of trying to make us all a monolith. Um, mm. But anyway, <laughs> so the last few years, we've had a lot of conversations around race in America um, with a lot of involvement from a lot of people around the Black Lives Matter cause. Um, so for a period of time after the George Floyd m- murder, it seemed like there was this kind of awakening to white America, to a lot of the issues that black people face, have been saying were happening for years. Here we are a year or so later. Do you think that a lot of people have kept that same energy? Or has everybody put down there how to be an anti-racist book? Tony. That book is on the shelf, <laughs> collecting dust. Collecting dust. I think that in the moment, it 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 was fetch. You know, like mm-hmm. let me read up. Let me let like I think white people have always not well. 
a lot of white people, the ones that we were, I'm thinking, when I think about white people, I think about like the people I work with in corporate and I think that they know what's going on, but they're just silent and their silence is violence. And so I, I think that in that moment they were reading books, they were joining panels, like li- to listen to panels, like mm-hmm. work was shoving it down your throat. Like, let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Like you had all these companies doing all these events where, People were starting to take notice of what was going on and white folks were coming around and they were asking, how do you feel? Which they've never, that those words have said no white person ever <laughs> before George Floyd, that moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that over the course of the year, it's kind of like, it's settled back down. It's like, okay, I can put this book away. Mm-hmm. I don't have to read these things anymore. I don't have to ask any, like, it's just like quietly going away back under that rug mm-hmm. and i'm getting upset you you see me <laughs> <laughs> i feel like it's making me upset to think about like how you know mum's the word now yeah mm-hmm. jordan yeah i mean i definitely think that um since 2020 things have definitely decreased you know we're, we aren't seeing at least from a like a at least from like a grand scale, um, we aren't really seeing um, corporations take these big uh, gestures, these big performative acts on showing their dedication to inclusion. Um, I think that we also um, are seeing like voter suppression still happening. I think that, you know, across the board, things are starting to slowly return to normal in terms of like the big acts of showing that there's solidarity with, um, you know, minority groups. And but I, but I will say, um, similar to Tony, that at least in the experience that I'm having with my white America and my ecosystem. So the people that I spend time with, I think that there is a more mindfulness around it. We're talking about it more, maybe not on a one-to-one basis, but there are things in place to make sure that race isn't completely disappearing away. Um, So I do think that people are being mindful for it, but I do think that a lot of the performance is going away, um, which may, you know, that probably takes out a lot of people um, mm-hmm. in terms of like the people who were only performing. They're just like, okay, we can stop now. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> stop doing the song and the dance. <laughs> so, okay, well, I'm not expected to like, you know, go out here and put the hashtag in my bio mm-hmm. and like go out and like change my profile picture and like those And pe- appear to be concerned. Right. Those, those people, you know, are probably just completely checked out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that Luckily, I think that this movement has given black people a stronger sense of confidence in being able to broach the situation. 100%. Um, so I think that that's also helping sort of keep it from going away. I can mm-hmm. just tell just that like black people are more comfortable initiating the uncomfortable conversation. And I also think that whether white people want to initiate it or not, I think the expectation is there. that They, are, they need to be somewhat prepared to have it. Mm-hmm. So if they're not initiating it, if they're not going out of their way to educate themselves, I don't think that it's a surprise if it comes up anymore, which, you know, isn't the best. But, um, you know, I don't think we're back at ground zero. I think that the I think there's some some lasting um, impressions on yeah the movement of 2020. We're, we're not at ground zero, but we're still at the surface level. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think 
You know, it's interesting. I People our age, specifically like early 30s or so, our relation to being involved and engaged with politics is voting for Barack Obama as our very first election and then getting to the space that we are in now. And I think that it's been, for me, the first time that I've like witnessed like the concept of like white backlash in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I don't know, like I, I like history and things like that. So you think about like reconstruction and then how that eventually transformed into Jim Crow. And I think a lot of times we think about those ideas of um, in like a historical context or an academic context where it's just like this happened and then there was a reaction that the majority of individuals didn't like and they responded this way. Mm-hmm. But like, I think right now having a lived experience in that is really, really taking a toll on me. And it's something mm-hmm. that like, like I'm the type of person I've loved politics. I love being engaged in like, now I'm just so turned off by the whole thing. Like you see Ooh. that we have conversations around race and then people morph that into talking points around critical race theory and making white kids feel bad about themselves as if that was ever the point. Right. As mm-hmm. if that's actually what critical race theory is, but I'm not going to even, that's a, we won't even go down that road. Or like you see the, the push for more people to get involved in the electoral process and the voting process. And then you get, tons of laws across the country to like make it harder when like Mm -hmm. actually when there's higher turnout it doesn't necessarily mean that republicans don't get don't win so like it's just a lot of bullshit um and it's just been really unfortunate i think for someone like myself who has been very engaged who like loves politics who loves the process of like change being involved having a voice to kind of see it in real time and i think At this cycle in what was it 08 uh, that Barack Obama was elected so 13 years ago like it's the first time that I've lived through it um, and, and that's been tough and mm-hmm. kind of debilitating um, so our guest uh, that we're going to bring on in a bit Keith Boykins uh, his new book um, Race Against Time mentions the concept that within a white dominated society black people have often learned to communicate their true thoughts on racism um, and the, excuse me, learn to not communicate their true thoughts on racism in white environments. Um, do you think that we are feeling, I think, Jordan, you kind of alluded to this, like we're feeling more emboldened to speak up. Um, do you think that for at least if white people haven't changed, do you think there's a, a space that black people feel more like we can be honest about how we feel? Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I want to take a moment to thank everyone, all the hands-on activists who are really, really instrumental in fighting for equal rights and fighting to make sure that the conversation didn't get lost in the media. Mm-hmm. Because I think what happened is that, you know, Keith is absolutely right. I think there's a lot of black people who feel like there are consequences to making white people feel uncomfortable, especially when you have to operate in predominantly white spaces. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think what, what one of the side effects was of 2020 was that it forced us as a country to talk about these issues, especially if you consider yourself to be somebody who was Mm anti-racist. It forced you to talk about it, no matter how uncomfortable you were. So going back to Tony's um, uh, point of people asking you at work, like, are you okay? I took a mental note of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, 
it's not that I, I expected that to happen, but I took a mental note because it made me feel like that if I ever did want to bring something up, that you were a safe person to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was that indicator for me, mm-hmm. that at least that if something ever comes up and I feel like I want to talk to you about something that I feel like I've been uncomfortable talking about in the past, I can do it with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I feel like there's a greater expectation for white people that there there's probably going to be a conversation about race at some point. And that no matter how uncomfortable you are, you need to just have it. So I I applaud the work that was done to get us to this point. Um, But speaking for myself personally, I don't feel that immunity every single place I go. Mm -mm. You know, I think that there are certain specific comfort zones, like the one I just told you, the people who did check up on me. But there is an apprehension still, you know, of saying something that could be... um, you know, consequential to like a a white person that I'm around of power. And, you know, that's something that I feel like I'm still working through, but yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm going to start here. Oh, it's time. Uh Oh, it's time for the, it's time for the TED talk. I got to start right here because the episode is called white fragility. And I think that the phrase was coined, um, by, Dr. Robin D'Angelo. She has a book. It's called White Fragility. And it was one of the books that was surfacing when, you know, in the height of the Black Lives Matter movement and when resources were front and center. And so white fragility, what that means is the discomfort and defensiveness on the part of a white person when confronted by information about racial inequality and injustice. Now, the fact that this makes them so uncomfortable to talk about these matters is like, well, good. You should be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I have always been, a, you know, kind of more progressive in my way of thought and thinking and just saying it like I mean it in the workplace. But especially after 2020, um, I absolutely am that dog watcher, that whistleblower, that the one that's going to remind the girls of what we're what we still need to do and part of my job and I'm big on inclusion and inclusivity and and those efforts in DRI, DEI, however, you know, there's so many different ways that people say it, but when it comes down to diversity, I'm I work on those matters in my day-to-day job but then also outside of my day-to-day job within the larger organization where I work. And I am not going to let up on reminding people where we still are and what we still need to do. And I'm not going to feel uncomfortable in any room, regardless of who's in the room, because I think that's the only way that we continue to (sighs) remind them of, you know, like speak truth to power. Yeah. I think like when we talk about people being uncomfortable, like I I revel in somebody feeling uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. So like the the very, (laughs) very first episode of the the podcast, (laughs) we recorded it. The Sunday, no, the Monday after like that very first weekend of protest for George Floyd. And like Jordan and I got into a very heated exchange about this um, that y'all can still go listen to. But (laughs) the the point being, I think the most comfort is the the thing that like gets no one anywhere. Comfort in like uh, white people feeling like I'm comfortable in this. I want to be comfortable in the conversation. Comfort in black people feeling like, oh, I'm afraid of what I can lose. Like, I think one of the things I kept saying on the very first episode of the podcast was like, what are we willing to sacrifice for the things that matter? Like we as professionals, individuals, just like if, if, if 
I'm only considering the fact that I may lose something by having a conversation with someone that makes them uncomfortable, then am I really that committed to that change? Mm -hmm. And I think that that premise that we talked about the very first time we ever did this at surface level is something that still means a lot to me today. <clears throat> and just like, if, if we can't sacrifice things on our part or if we can't push people past the level of comfort then what what's really the point do we then, then we're just accepting the world as it is right and not as it should be like i think I, i've said a few times this season um mm -hmm. but yeah i i think that's where i am fuck comfort yeah well fuck comfort and, <laughs> and, and but and why did i think of the comfort in i don't know why <laughs> never stayed there um, well, i mean no no shame <laughs> No shame. I yes, think I have stayed at a comfort in. Well, congrats. Um, <laughs> good catastrophe. This is a good time to bring in our guest, though, today. Uh, so joining us today, as we mentioned earlier, is a gentleman and a scholar. And I say that without sarcasm, and you'll see why in a second. He is a New York Times best-selling author, CNN political commentator, and former White House aide to President Bill Clinton. His new book, Race Against Time, The Politics of a darkening oh, it's like it's not in the camera <laughs> america <laughs> just hit shelves in september and so make sure you grab a copy um because there's a lot of good learning and if you're not a reader it's available on audible it's available on audible so you can have keith read it to you <laughs> so today we welcome keith boykin to our surface level family <laughs> welcome hello hey how are you good hey. Good to have you here. So, uh, Keith, one of the things that we do on this podcast before we jump into the interview segment is we like to play a game of this or that with our guests, just so that our listeners and our viewers can get a sense for your personality and just, you know, fill you out before we start getting into the serious conversation. Okay. So, cook dinner or order dinner? Cook dinner. What are you cooking? Love that. <laughs> but like just a side question what do you what do you cook well i kind of cook the same things over and over again and i kind of do a com combination where I, I go i live near i won't say where i did, live <laughs> I, I live near a grocery store in harlem uh i'm not there right now i'm in i'm in washington dc but um and i often go to this grocery store because it's like literally a two blocks from my house so I go to the grocery store, pick up some things, and I cook around the thing. So I might buy like a grilled breast of chicken and then like cook some vegetables and stuff to go with it. Or, you know, I'll buy one thing and then cook some things around it. That's what I'd like to do. Okay. But I, I don't okay. like to order out a lot. And despite the fact that I just ordered a pizza here in DC and I ate like half, three quarters of a big pizza. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, Missouri or Florida? Well, you know, I lived in both places. So, I do know. So which one is I know. it? <laughs> well, you know, they're both kind of horrible. That's the thing. <laughs> so what's the best of the worst? Um, well, at least Florida has fun things to do, and despite being horrible. Um, <laughs> Missouri, you know, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. And Missouri, it's, it's Missouri. It's kind of a slow place. Um, it's not... I, it, I'm joking when I say it's horrible, obviously, but um, it's not a place for me to live anymore. I'm a New Yorker, so I can't I can't imagine living in, in Missouri or St. Louis again. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, Florida, Florida is like three different states. So I mean, there's Northern Florida, Central Florida, and Southern Florida. Northern Florida is basically Georgia. Um, it's very Confederate redneck. 
Central Florida is like tourist, it's touristville, you know, Disneyland and all that kind of stuff. And South Florida is a whole different country. It's it's like it's you know it's 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 Hispanic. It's it's Latin American. It's um, Caribbean. It's it's a whole bunch of different things. And you've got like white white people and black people from the north who come down to Miami uh, and party for for weekends. And and you've got senior citizens who retire in, in in South Florida. So it's it's a whole combination of different things in Florida. But South Florida is the only part of Florida that actually actually can tolerate even though my family is from florida spoken like a true new yorker (laughs) (laughs) uh driver's seat or passenger seat Ooh, i'm not sure what that means i I don't really (laughs) i don't i don't know how to answer that i guess driver's seat because i'd rather have control i'd rather drive than to be a passenger okay Uh, that's what you're asking yeah but i'm not i don't really like to drive i sold my car 20 years ago haven't haven't had a car since Oh, that makes sense in New York, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, group project or work alone? Absolutely, work alone. <laughs> I do not like group projects. I don't like group activities. Period. Uh, people ask me to come together. Is that? I said, is anybody going to choose group project? Apparently, some uh, people do. I, I work in a very collaborative space. We we all do, right? Um, but in school, when it comes to school, I think we go back to that place where it's like in school you hated to work in the group <laughs> project because you're like, if my name, I want the A, and you you girls are you don't want the a. dropping the ball, and I can't. <laughs> now I'm stuck doing all the fucking work. Yeah. <laughs> um, There's always gonna be somebody who doesn't pull their weight. <laughs> all right, shoes off at your front door or keep the shoes on. Ooh, that's a good one. You know, I um hmm. I'm definitely keep your shoes on, person. I don't really care if you take your shoes off, but um, I don't want to. I don't want to implicate anybody. But I'm staying at my best friend's house in DC, and he has a shoes off policy. So whenever I'm here, my shoes are always off in this place. You sound just like me. <laughs> Read or watch. Um, oh, you mean like the same thing? I don't. That's a, that's a question. I, I, just, I really don't know. I read so much. I don't know. It depends on what I'm doing. I read, I read all day, but a lot of what I read is news. And after a while, you get, I don't, it just gets so overwhelming. You don't want to like look at another word of news. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, a lot of what I watch is news, too. Uh, like, I don't really watch a lot of TV, but when I do, like 95% of it is just, I turn on CNN or MSNBC for 15 minutes while I'm eating and then go back to reading, um, <laughs> reading the news. So, uh, gosh, it's, that's kind of a tough one, but, uh, I read, I, th- it all feels like work to me though, both of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so nothing's real. You're, you're rather sleep. <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> I'd rather listen to music. I'd rather listen to music, actually. Okay. Oh, oh, can I throw in one? Yeah. Are you night owl or morning daytime person? Absolutely. Early bird. Absolutely. Early bird. Absolutely, one hundred percent night owl. I do not. I am not a morning person. I do not schedule meetings in the mornings. Uh, fortunately, because I'm self-employed and I get to work for myself, I don't ever do anything. I don't even like set an alarm in the morning. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> so I'm, gl- I'm glad we scheduled this for a nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> I get up when I get up. I usually stay up until one or two in that one or two in the morning every night. And then whatever time I get up, I get up and then start going. But I don't like to schedule any meetings. I have a whole routine in the morning. I make breakfast every morning. Uh, you know, sometimes I meditate, but I just do my own thing. I want to have my own space. I want to be bombarded with stuff as soon as I wake up. Hmm. And finally, 
What are you curious about? Hmm. So many things. Wow. This one always. What's the, the first girls. thing that comes to mind? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I guess you know. I'm curious about about everything. I'm curious about life. I'm curious about myself. I'm curious about the world around me and what's going to happen in the future. I think most. I think mostly. I'm very curious about myself. I'm very sort of introspective and always sort of questioning myself and why do I do the things I do. Um, sometimes I wish I didn't do some of the things I do. Uh, <laughs> very. I think I'm very curious about myself a lot, um, which. It's always fascinating to me because I meet people, meet people sometimes who don't seem to have any sort of self-reflection at all. They just do things. They don't seem to be curious about themselves at all. Red flag. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so Keith, let's, let's start here. Um, because what we, we found that in doing a little bit of research, your favorite quote comes from Audre Lorde. Yes. And it's, she says... When I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my mission, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. And just want to know, like, that's your favorite quote, but what does that really mean to you? What, what do those words mean to you? Hmm. Well, I feel like I've led a life where I've had to sort of dare to be powerful throughout. Um, I mean, I... I've lived. I'm 56 years old, so I've lived through lived through different times where things that now seem ordinary didn't seem possible back in the day. Uh, When I graduated from um, college, college, I went to work for (laughs) I went to work for a political campaign, um, and the, the campaign lost. I worked for five, I think, five political campaigns, and they all lost. Um, and they were all liberal Democrats or Democrats of some sort. And then the idea that, um, it, it just, it didn't even seem possible that at that point that we would ever elect a black president. It didn't even seem possible at that point that we'd ever have uh, marriage equality, um, in, in the United States. Um, a, a lot of things that I've seen in my lifetime did not seem possible. Um, and in order to be able to be in spaces where I could be an advocate for the things I believed in, I had this sort of, uh, dare to be powerful, if you will, um, and not to let any sort of fear of doing that prevent me. So I think back to the 90s. When I was in the, in the 90s, I used to live here in Washington, D.C., and I was executive director of an organization called the National Black Lesbian and Gay Leadership Forum. And I was sort of, unfortunately, on the front line, well, fortunately, unfortunately, I was, I was sort of the, uh, a pariah for a lot of people, even in the black community, even among black LGBTQ people, a lot of people, just, they knew me because I was always on television. I was on BET and, and other networks, always sort of talking about a black LGBT cause. And as a result, um, you know, you kind of suffer a certain sort of social exclusion because of that. Some people, especially people who were in the closet, people in the DL, didn't really want to be too close to me. Some people thought I was too much of an advocate. Um, My colleague, Jasmine Canick, and I ran a campaign against homophobic black pastors some time ago. And we got a lot of pushback from the black community for doing that, including black queer people who were upset about that. Uh, And just being on the front lines has caused a lot of... um, you know, it, a lot of, a lot of issues personally in life, and so it, it just I, what I like about about Audrey Lord's quote is she says, "When I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less important whether I am afraid." 
She doesn't say you won't be afraid. So she's acknowledging that fear is real, but she's saying that when you're doing something in service of a vision, a vision to help people, to, to make a better world, then the fear becomes less important. Hmm. Wow. So to pivot and get into uh, your book a little bit, so just to provide some context for our listeners, uh, I found that you, you said the reason and what prompted you to write the book uh, is and was the shocking police brutality, racial justice crisis, and a divided America in ways that truly harken back to the days of the Civil War. And Keith, in your book, you say that from the very first day, Black Americans, Black Americans were freed from slavery. Fearful white Americans began a race against time to stop the people they had once enslaved from becoming too powerful. So can you talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say race against time and, and when you think time will be up? Mm. Well, I mean, race against time is actually kind of a, a double entendre. Um, on the one hand, race against time means looking at the concept of race over time, race against time. And that's why the book is divided in three parts. The first part is about 2020. The second part is about how we got to 2020, where I go back and talk about all the history that led up to this point. And then the third part is about where we go uh, and in the future. So that's the race, looking at race against time. But the other way that race against time operates in the sort of more, more uh, I guess, a well-known construction is that white America is currently engaged in a last-ditch race to stop the changing of time. They see that we've had a black president for eight years. They see that we have a black woman president of Jamaican and Indian descent, uh, vice president. They see that we've had a woman who ran for president who got more votes than the white man who, quote unquote, defeated her in the electoral college. They see that the, the Hispanic Latinx population is growing so rapidly that in the next five, next three decades, five states will have a, a, a majority Hispanic population. They see that the Asian American population is growing rapidly. They see that L the LGBTQ community is growing to the point where um, we now have marriage equality in all 50 states. They see also that the Census Bureau came out with a report not long ago that said that white America will no longer be the majority in this country by 2044. And they see a new Census Bureau report that came out just this year that says that the white population is declining for the first time in American history. All those things combined are convincing white people that their, that their era, their period of white supremacy, of white privilege is coming to an end. Now, of course, it doesn't affect all white people in the same way, but there are, there are a significant number of white Americans who are dreadfully afraid of this changing America, dreadfully afraid of the loss of privilege, of the loss of, uh, of white privilege in particular. And that's what this rage is all about, the white rage that Carol Anderson talks about in her book, the idea that people would actually lead an insurrection to try to overthrow the, the government of the United States of America because they don't want a democracy to take place. They didn't have to, they didn't have a problem with democracy when we were electing white men all the time, even though white men, <laughs> white men are only 29% of the population, but every one of our presidents except for one, they didn't have a problem with that. That's not really a democracy, right. by the way, that's an oligarchy, but they had no problem with that. But as soon as the democracy suggests that we might have a more representative, inclusive, open and, uh, rep and and broad-minded government, they start. A lot of people started to lose it, 
And so we're seeing this in every in so many examples, everything from the resistance to the mask mandates to the resistance to the vaccines. We're seeing it in the insurrection of the Capitol. We're seeing it in, in the fights that people are having on airplanes and, and shopping malls and, and grocery stores. We're seeing it um, in the laws that are being passed in state legislatures to make it harder for people to vote. We're seeing that, there, that in the court decisions from the judges that have been appointed by Donald Trump and other Republicans that, that roll back any sort of progressive change. We're seeing it in the, in, the, in, the resi- in the willingness to hold on to this antiquated rule about the filibuster in the United States Senate, which is not in the Constitution, which allows a small group of white rural states to control an um, increasingly pluralistic and diverse society. We're seeing in the resistance to make Making Washington, D.C. a state or Puerto Rico a state. We're seeing it in the willingness or un- unwillingness, I should say, to change our U- United States uh, Senate composition so that states like California with 40 million people don't get just two U.S. senators, while North Dakota and South Dakota combined with only one and a half million people get four U.S. senators. And North Dakota and South Dakota are a bunch of white, mostly white rural communities who are Republican and conservative. California, the largest state in the union, much more diverse much more inclusive, much more representative of where America is. They only have two U.S. senators. This is, they're, they're structural impediments that they've, they've put in place and they're going to continue to, to, to try to, to, to use to their benefit. Now they're going to gerrymandering congressional districts all because they want to stay in power. Now, there's an old saying, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And for a lot of people who have been privileged, the idea of sharing that privilege or sharing the wealth feels oppressive. So um, I wanted to sort of keep on that theme that we're talking about right now. And um, I think that there is a large portion of white Americans who feel like we are in a post-racial racial society. Um, I don't know if they feel like that exactly today, uh, but uh, your book focuses largely on the longstanding presence of white supremacy. You sort of go back into the history of it. Um, And a lot of people will say that they think that the presidency of Donald Trump was sort of like a necessary evil to bring white supremacy to the surface. And I want to know how you feel about that sentiment. Do you feel like, you know, everything that led up to 2020 um, was was there a, you know, do you feel like it created a a much needed uh, boost of urgency around racial justice? Or how do you feel about the fact that it's at the forefront right now? Well, yeah, I was watching the conversation that you all were having earlier about this, about whether uh, 2020 was just a moment or whether white America has moved on or not. And I I really enjoyed what you were saying. Uh, It reminded me of a conversation I had last night at a book signing event here in Washington, D.C. And we were talking about the fact that uh, it feels like 2020 was not a reckoning. First of all, I don't think it was a reckoning. I talk about that in the book expl- explicitly. But it feels like it was not only not a reckoning, but it was just uh, a momentary uh, unwillingness to allow embarrassment, if you will. Let me explain. 2020 saw shocking incidents of racial uh, police brutality, as I mentioned in the book. One of those, the most obvious of which was George Floyd's murder. When you get to see nine minutes of video of a man being executed in slow motion by, by police officers, that was so disturbing that even Donald Trump felt uncomfortable with it. That was problematic. 
Um, and that's what a lot of people in white America didn't want to see. They wanted to feel that the country was operating and operating, operating in a way that that didn't feel overtly so overtly oppressive. And when you see visual images of, of, of something like that, it's hard to sort of hold on to that sense of innocence. So they wanted to, to avoid that embarrassment. That's all that we saw in 2020, a resistance to that type of embarrassment. But the, the regular ordinary racism and white supremacy and white privilege, the microaggressions that go on every day, they don't really have a problem with all that. It's just those, those outrageous incidents. This is also what they understood in the civil rights movement. Uh, there, we, had, we had segregation. People were being segregated in the United States for a hundred years after slavery. And it didn't bother a lot of people enough to want to change the system. It was only when the, the civil rights movement started to sort of highlight the injustices, when you started to see the instances of, of, of someone like, like Rosa Parks in 1955. You, couldn't, you didn't see her on the bus, but you saw the people protesting in the streets in 1956 when they, when they did the bus boycott in Montgomery. When you saw in 1957, when you saw in Little Rock, Arkansas, when you saw Elizabeth Eckford simply trying to go to school as a, as a high school student and white people yelling and screaming racial epithets at her, those are the types of images that white people felt uncomfortable with. Or when you saw John Lewis and Bloody Sunday simply trying to cross the bridge in Selma, Alabama, and police officers basically beating him bloody to a pulp because they didn't want him marching for the right to vote in, in Alabama. Those are the type of images they didn't like. They didn't like seeing images of people being murdered and, and brutalized. They didn't like the images of the, the, the water hoses and, and, and the, 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 the German shepherds being sicked on, on the, the protesters because they made them feel uncomfortable. It, it took away the whole sense of innocence. So all they really wanted to do then, which is sort of the same thing they really want to do now, is just to remove those uncomfortable images so they could go back to the fantasy that America is actually the meritocracy and black people and white people are all treated equally and black people need to stop complaining. So I didn't buy into the idea that there was a racial reckoning. I, I thought a lot of it was performative. And a lot of what we need today from white allies is not more performative allyship. We don't need more people just uh, putting on George Floyd buttons and stickers. We need people to actually talk to other white people. That's the most important thing that white people can do. I don't every, every time I post a tweet about racism on my Twitter post, Twitter page, I get dozens of white people who, who type in, not this white person. You know, I'll, I'll post a poll. <laughs> it's true. I'll post a poll that says, which is posted a, a reality, which is that no Democratic president for candidate for president has won the white vote since Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat, signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Not one Democrat has won the white vote. Barack Obama didn't do it. Bill Clinton didn't do it. Joe Biden didn't do it. White people overwhelmingly vote Republican as part of, in this country because the Republican Party is the party of white people. But when you say something like that, which is a statement of fact, I get resistance on my Twitter page from white allies who say things to me like, oh, I'm not that person. I don't give a F. I don't need you to come here and t prove to me how, how, how supportive you are. What I need you to do is go talk to your parents and grandparents and your racist uncles. Go talk to your friends and colleagues and your church members and your, and your coworkers. Talk to them. Stop them when they, when they tell those racist jokes. Don't tell, tell me how unracist you are. That's not helpful. Go talk to your people. That's what, that's what we need people to do. I also I think that there's um this lack of collective work that we do in America. Like I think there were very much a 
individualistic society. Um, and 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 I, I just want to know a, a thing that I've talked to some friends about recently is just why is it that if black people tell you something is happening, we don't believe them. If trans people tell you something's happening, we don't believe them. We have to wait until Bloody Sunday happens. We have to wait until George Floyd, his neck is knelt on for minutes and minutes. And you wa- literally watch this man die on TV. And if we did more of listing and like truly recognizing and believing the experiences of oppressed people, it we, we wouldn't have to wait until we get to the point of pain, of black death, of black... Uh, abuse and like that's the thing that really really drives me fucking crazy i'm just like if i'm a person i'm like hey things aren't going right for me as a person in this country believe me but Uh, like you don't until you watch me be slaughtered on tv and i think it's empathy is what people are lacking because until you have a lived experience it's so hard for people to understand something until it really affects home Mm -hmm. until it hits home for them so that to me is like part of the reason but it's it's a lot to unpack there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if, one of the things that we're trying to do in our show is really talk about the intersection of black and queer experience. Um, so for you being a person that has spent a career as in politics, personally as an activist, but also uh, working in the political system, how do you feel that um, your identity as a black and queer person has affected that? Mm. I don't think I would be able to be as uh, effective or as understanding of the intersections were I not both black and queer. Um, But I think um, my understanding transcends black queer identities, but also other intersectional identities. It it extends to those. And the reason why I can sort of think about this is I, I go back to when I was in college. There are a couple of controversies we had in college that kind of helped to illustrate this the, this, the, interse- the intersectionality, the issue of empathy, I think, is what Tony was talking about before, which is what, what in- intersectionality uh, analysis um, kind of leads me to. Um, I remember we had a fight over the school song when I was a freshman uh, because the school song at Dartmouth College was Men of Dartmouth and had been that way for years because it was an all-male institution until the 1970s. But the school changed it, and well into the late 80s and early 90s, people were still resisting the, the new song. Uh, and I'm not a woman, obviously, I'm, I'm, well, not obviously, but I'm not a woman, but I, um, I still didn't understand why men were so, some men were, and some women were even so invested in protecting an old song that was clearly not inclusive. Then we had another debate about the school uh, mascot. We had a mascot, which was the Indian symbol for, for decades in our, in our, in our college. Um, and then in the 1960s, they started admitting uh, Native American, indigenous people as students. And suddenly they realized, oh, this is, this is not cool, so we need to change the symbol. So they started using a new symbol. But there were still people in the late 1980s and 90s who were holding on to the old Indian symbol that had been dis- discontinued in the 70s because they felt it was part of a tradition. And why are people so aff- upset and offended by this? They couldn't understand why people would be offended by this because they weren't offended by it, which I thought was baffling to me. I'm, again, I'm not Native American, I'm not indigenous, but I understood why if these people are upset, why do we feel so invested in protecting something called tradition over instead of protecting the interests of people who are clearly upset, a marginalized group of people? Which leads me to the present, and this is not just about white people, but about all people, because it leads me to the conversation about Dave Chappelle. It feels to me that, you know, 
I don't understand why people think that just because uh, something doesn't offend you. A lot of people I've heard, a lot of people in the black queer community have told me, well, it didn't offend me. I watched the show. You need to watch the show. It's, it's actually okay. It's not that bad. Okay, it didn't offend you, perhaps. But there are black trans people who have told me explicitly that it offends them. And we can't just erase and dismiss their experience because it doesn't offend us, because we have a sense of relative privilege vis-a-vis them that we think that we can, we can deny the significance of their pain. And that's part of what intersectionality means for me. It's not just about understanding one's own intersectional identities, but understanding that all of our communities are intersectional. There is no, you can't have a, a, an analysis of black people without understanding black trans people, black queer people, black women, black people with disabilities, black people who, with, with low incomes, black people with health issues, black people who are living with HIV AIDS, black people who are immigrants, black people who come from different communities, black people come from all different shapes and colors and backgrounds and sizes and experiences. We're not the same. But we can't create this sort of monolithic, hotep-oriented philosophy of who black people are that discounts a whole range of people who don't fit into your respectability politics lens of the way we should be constructed for society or for the white gaze. Mm. Well, Keith, uh, we really want to thank you for taking the time. Um, You're a busy person and just sharing the space with us, sharing your perspective with us um, really means a lot. And before we go, though, we do want to give you an opportunity to let people know where they can find you. Um, if there's any projects you have coming up, um, please share. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you again for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to be a part of this conversation. I really enjoyed the conversation you had before. Um, <laughs> we were cutting up. <laughs> It was good. I, I wish I had more chance to have more of the fun conversations than the, uh, the, the, the political conversation. But, um, but yeah, I, uh, I can be reached online um, at KeithBoykin.com, which is my website, or at KeithBoykin on Twitter or on uh, Instagram. And um, that's K-E-I-T-H-B-O-Y-K-I-N. Uh, next projects, I am currently uh, working on two book projects. Uh, one is sort of a family history about how I discovered, met my biological father. Um, the other is, whew, the other one, I'm, I'm not sure when I'm going to get to this one because there's a, there's a new version, there's a new uh, chapter to the story that's being written right now. But the other is a story about uh, someone I dated, I met in Cuba um, years ago and um, helped him to escape from Cuba to Chile. I thought that was the yeah. end of the story until a week or two ago and he told me he... I probably even shouldn't be saying this right now, but uh, he told me he is actually currently um, trying to sneak into the United States. So um, he's left Chile. He's left Chile and he's on on some multi-thousand mile journey to to get into the United States. Um, So I don't know how that's going to work. I told him not to do it. I told him he might get killed along the way, but... So I don't know what that that's one of the book projects I've been thinking about. But it, the, now the more I think about the fact that my friend is, is in, in danger in his life to try to come to the United States, I'm not sure where that where that will ever end. Um, and then I'm also working on a couple of TV projects. I'm planning on going to Los Angeles, um, uh, moving out there next month to, to start working on a couple of projects and um, stay tuned for the next episode.
Yes. Nice. Yes. Well, we love a surface level exclusive, and that's what <laughs> I feel like we just got. So thank you again, Keith. But that's all the time we have this week. This season of Surface Level is produced in partnership with Moby, Mobilizing Our Brothers Initiative. And if you enjoyed this episode, let's keep the conversation going. Let us know your thoughts and questions at surfacelevelpodcast.com. And remember, stay curious.